Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So good morning again. Nice to see you. Um, so we'll uh, move into our Q&A here. And um, just to let you know, one thing I'd like to try this week is um, I am recording, uh, but I'll just record my responses. Uh, I have a sense that this might be useful to others. So what I'll do is I'll repeat the question, whether it's written in the chat or uh, given live verbally. Um, and then that way, just the question and my response will be recorded. And if something feels very personal and you don't want it uh, shared, just please tell me that and I won't, I won't publish it. So how's it going? What, uh, what's in your heart, on your mind related to um, your practice and being human during this time that we can explore? So the question is, uh, I get confused when to use an anchor and when to switch to more open awareness, especially when my anchor is sound, which keeps changing. Uh, so great, great question. So um, you're pointing to um, a couple of different things, and it might be helpful to just clarify the different techniques that we're referring to here, right? So using an anchor um, is part of stabilizing and steadying the mind, often referred to as shamatha, uh, practice, calming, settling. And so in this, we just keep coming back to that one thing. Open awareness we don't have a chosen object. Sometimes it's referred to as choiceless awareness because we're not intentionally directing the mind to one thing. So with hearing, if hearing is your primary object, your anchor, um, even though the sounds keep changing, you're still there with what we call the ear door, the, the sensitivity of hearing. In the same way with the breath, the breath keeps changing. The sensations are not the same with breathing if you pay close attention. Uh, so what, what we're doing with the breath is we're connecting with this pattern of sensation in one particular area. It might be the nose, the chest, the belly, could be the whole body, but staying with that rhythmic pattern. So when to, when to switch? This is where the art and intuition and practice come up. Um, there's no right answer here. The idea is you wanna stay with an anchor long enough so that you have some sense of steadiness. And what's enough steadiness? Well, that's for you to explore and see, you know, try things out, make mistakes. That's how we learn. Um, so stay with it for a while. With the breath, some people will say, you know, if you can get up to a count of three or five, that's enough. Um, without, you know, huge distractions, there will be thoughts and other things without getting lost. Um, when you let go of the anchor and you move to more choiceless awareness, right? So now what's happening is instead of, you kind of think of the metaphor of awareness kind of like um, a beam, right? You focus the beam down, it's on one thing, whether that's sound or the breath. Um, now it's like you widen that beam and it's almost like now it's just, the, it's just a frame. Whatever arises within awareness is known. So it might be a sound and then a thought and then another sound and then the breath and then a sensation and then a memory and then a, an emotion and then the emotion stays for a while and then it's replaced by a thought and then the emotion comes back. We're just with the flow of changing experience. 
what can happen with choiceless awareness if the concentration factor, the steadiness in the mind, is not strong enough. If it starts to wane, then we begin drifting. We get pulled into a story, we're gone for longer periods of time with more frequency. As you start to notice that, that's the time to come back to the anchor, ground, let that momentum of concentration and steadiness build up before shifting again to the sense of choiceless or open awareness. So with sound, if you're using sound as the anchor, um, it's just the sense of you are choosing to just be with the sounds that are arising and changing in the foreground of your awareness. That's what you're foregrounding. That's what you're giving the most attention to. And everything else is in the background. When you, be, when you switch to choiceless awareness, whatever is predominant, whatever comes into the foreground and naturally calls the attention, that's what we stay with. And we stay with it, this is the key, we stay with it as long as it's predominant. So there's some truck that pulls up outside your house and it's rumbling and it's, you know, da 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 You stay with that as long as it's what's naturally calling the attention. Then you notice some aversion. The heart's tightening, there's agitation. Now that has, has, is what's strongest. You stay with that and so on. Okay, hope that's helpful. So I'll just repeat the question or summarize it. Um, so you're a long-term meditator um, and you're noticing particularly during the crisis decreasing concentration, decreasing ability to stay with the anchor or your moment-to-moment experience. And that's kind of creating a cascade of effects in the mind, a kind of wanting for the way your practice used to be, um, judging yourself for, for you know it not being better, um, and uh, it kind of sounds like a little bit of a spin there, and then shifting to metta practice, loving-kindness practice, as a little bit of a balm or an antidote. Okay, thank you. I, I love this question. So there's a lot here. Uh, the first thing I would say is um, the, uh, the level of clarity and detail with which you describe your experience to me signals that your practice is going fine because <laughs> you're aware of what's happening. It's just that you don't like it. That's a very important distinction to start to notice, right? Like, yeah, you're getting lost, but you're, you're aware that you're getting lost. And then there's the judging and the reactivity to that, the wanting what was in the past, the reacting to the wanting, but you're seeing all of that. So important to kind of recognize the difference, what's happening, and, and, and I want to try to reframe um, your experience for you a little bit. Um, instead of, so the content of your experience has changed, and the, um, the balance of mental factors has changed. Not as much concentration, more um, the mind moving between objects, more, more um, uh, not necessarily rapidly, but without as much choice. Uh, and a quality of reactivity to that in judgment. So part of what's happening is, well, first, yeah, that's all natural, right? Conditions have changed for all of us in our lives. One of the things we learn and study through um, this practice is conditionality. It's called this-that conditionality, ida pachayata. This is because that is. When this is not, that is not. That's the essential um, uh, 
kind of law or program underneath the Four Noble Truths is this understanding of interrelated conditions. And when, when one of those conditions changes, the whole structure changes. So you are experiencing and observing that directly in your own mind. Conditions around you have changed, therefore the conditions inside start changing. It's just that you don't particularly like what's changing. Part of why the, the, you're getting stuck, I think, is because there's a particular view. Right? So Noble Eightfold Path, first factor, first path factor is right view. So um, the reframe, to go back to what I was saying before, that I want to offer for you is that your practice is progressing in a certain way. What's happening is it's inviting you and, and in some ways forcing you to let go of your attachment to, one, a certain kind of meditation experience, a level of calm and concentration and clarity, it's also inviting you to let go of your preconceived notion of what good practice looks like. This is hard for us when we've been on the path for a long time, particularly if we have some facility with the practice. We've been able to um, not necessarily control the mind, but have some influence over it. When those levers inside stop working and I can't get back to that kind of calm, steady state, is disturbing. So part of what's being revealed to you is the sense of self that has um, subtly or not so subtly come into being through the meditation, right? There's someone who's meditating, who's not doing it well, who should be able to, who needs to get back to, right? So all of that is fuel for, um, for clear seeing and letting go. Who's practicing? It's not you. It's just the mind. It's just different mental factors. And what you're seeing is a certain level of anatta, non-self, which um, one of the definitions, one of the um, ways of understanding this that, that to me makes so much sense and feels much more accessible than this whole like, is there a person or not and who am I, which is, which is valid. It's a very deep exploration. Um, but the, the point that's relevant here is it's sometimes translated as or means ungovernable, not in our control. So you're witnessing directly that the mind is not in our control. So what happens if you reframe the experience as um, the nature of things being revealed to you directly, the nature of dependent co-arising and conditionality, the nature of non-self, and the place, so the places, um, the kind of fulcrum points for you um, to observe the arising and the ending of suffering are the sense of self, the person that's being created in the mind through the content of the meditation, and the preconceived notion of how things should be, and then the subsequent judgment, I don't like it, it's not, it's not the way it should be. So part of what's needed is not more concentration, it's more wisdom. See that? The second part of your question was about using metta as an antidote. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not an antidote to, I got to get more concentrated and this is going to help me get back there. That's just going to reinforce the same cycle, right? But an antidote to the pain. Because there's, there's uh, the judgment hurts, 
right? The judgment, even though it's founded on something that's not real, the judgment itself is real. It's arising in your experience. And there's a sense of, of the, the longing, the pain, the not good enough. Um, all of that needs to um, be met with, with compassion and kindness. So I would absolutely encourage you to continue with the metta practice to create that inner atmosphere of warmth and tenderness towards yourself. And then see if you can use that kindness to investigate more the expectations underlying the, the judgment and resistance to what's happening. Okay, I hope that's helpful. So you're asking about the mind. Analio says that the mind is that which knows sensations, etc. Is the mind also that which knows thoughts or are thoughts mind? Uh, part of the issue is one of translation. Um, and so without knowing what, what Pali term he's translating, uh, I can't fully comment. Um, there is the chitta, uh, often translated as heart or mind or heart-mind. Um, the chitta is, is that which experiences all of, the, all of the six sense stores, the five physical senses in the mind. So if he's referring to chitta, um, then, which it sounds like perhaps he is because he's referring to sensations, then yes, thoughts and mental objects would be um, known in the, in the chitta, and the chitta receives um, perception and feeling, uh, those, two, uh, those two factors. Uh, there's also uh, what's known as mano, uh, also translated as mind, which is the sense base of the mental realm. So just like the eye is the sense base for visual objects and the experience of seeing consciousness, mano is the sense base for the experience of mental objects, uh, for mental objects and the experience of mental consciousness, thought, image, and so forth. Um, so mano would be only experiencing mental objects and not uh, other sensations as far as I understand. Uh, so I hope that's helpful. So th this month I've really been emphasizing the quality of friendliness in our practice as one of, the, one of the key central tones or intentions to bring to our practice. For those who study Buddhist um, philosophy in, in the Noble Eightfold Path, the second path factor, Samasankapa, right intention or right thought is comprised of three qualities, um, kindness, compassion, and renunciation. So these are like the primary colors of intention that we bring into our practice. Um, so this tone of friendliness is central. And the, uh, the question is, um, I'm having a really hard time with that. I'm failing spectacularly. Love the, love the, um, love the image there. Uh, I really need some help because uh, I'm gripped with anger. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to be angry about. Um, in life in general, and particularly right now, as we see, you know, governments, uh, our government making mistakes, not, uh, not responding, and people's lives are on the line, right? People are dying um, every day uh, because of mistakes that are being made on a medical level and on an administration level in terms of the response. Um, <clears throat> so... <clears throat> The first thing that comes for me is, is to make space for the anger, because it's real. It's what's happening. Remember, we're with what's predominant in our experience. So anger is only problematic 
um, when we act on it in an unconscious way. It's a completely natural energy for mammals. It's a self-protective energy. It's just energy. So um, the, the first move is to see, can you make space for the anger and be with it? Can you welcome the anger? Now, if it's overwhelming, if it's crushing, that's when you want to move away, right? Um, tomorrow and Friday, Caroline will be speaking about working with difficult emotions and experiences. So she'll say a lot more about that. How do you meet the intensity? How do you move away? How do you hold it? Um, the first thing is, is welcoming the anger. Uh, the second then, the sense of like the friendliness. So um, the anger can be turned out. It can be turned in towards oneself. That's really painful when it, when it turns in on oneself. Um, You start where you are, right? Like that Pema Chodron book, Start start Where You Are. So um, the tenderness, and, and for me, as I, as I hear your question, it's more tenderness that feels needed than friendliness. Like friendliness is like, hey, how's it going? It's like, this is not a friendly situation, right? This is a painful situation. This is an intense and raw experience. So it's more the quality of tenderness, which is compassion, which is both the, um, the uh, sensitivity to hold and resonate with what's happening, to meet it with care, and then the um, capacity to respond, to say, well, what's needed right now? How do I help this? So um, that holding begins wherever you can at the farthest edge out. And the phrase that I love for this, which one of my first teachers used to use all the time, is it's okay to not feel okay. Right? It's right there. It's like we're, we're allowing the truth of the anger, of the feeling of being out of control, of the wanting it to be different, of judging it, of all of it. It's okay to not feel okay. And what's it like to just take that to heart, to say it to yourself? to internalize that, right? Part of this path, particularly when it comes to these really gnarly places, it's, <laughs> it's like reparenting ourself in a way. So we're, we're bringing together Michelle McDonald, uh, one of the senior teachers in the Insight tradition who's uh, been a mentor and um, friend of mine for many years. Um, she talks about the practice as, as bringing together the um, the innocence and vulnerability of the ch- of the inner child with the strength of the wise elder. So there's the anger and the frustration and the outrage. Great, make space for it, but don't leave that part alone. Bring that steady, loving, patient, uh, deep presence of the wise elder to be with the anger. And that's that it's okay to not be okay. You start where you are. Um, In terms of practical um, guidance, there are a few meditations on my um, COVID resources page on my website on loving kindness and compassion practice. There's three or four guided meditations. Um, One of them on sending and receiving love. So you might check those out and see if those are helpful. Um, 
shameless plug, uh, Saturday, in a few days, I'm doing part two of an online workshop series that will be focused on compassion uh, and how to care without getting overwhelmed. So it's a three and a half hour session. So we'll go into much more depth if you want to check that out. Uh, That's also on my website. Allison, so the question is, any thoughts on patience versus passivity um, when I'm practicing with patience versus withdrawing from action in ways that might not be helpful? Thank you. Um, Yeah, so there's a few few distinctions there for me to make. One is... um, about time, uh, the, the arc of time. So the inner practice that we do, whether it's practicing patience or practicing compassion or loving kindness or calm abiding, um, these are like ways of taking care of the heart and mind, right? Like you don't stop bathing just because, you know, your loved one is ill and in the hospital. You don't stop eating just because, you know, you're having trouble in your marriage, right? We still take care of the body. So even though there's a crisis and there's a need to respond, we still take care of the heart and the mind. So the practicing of patience is is strengthening the basis from which we can act. It's cleaning and clearing the inner domain of the heart and the mind so that our responsiveness comes from wisdom and clarity and not reactivity. So it's important to separate the, um, the healing and the inner cultivation um, from the engagement with the world, and the two go hand in hand. That's why it's an eightfold path and not a one or a two or a threefold path, right? There's right speech and right action. There's ethics. So that's one very important point on the difference between patience and passivity is our practice informs our ability to respond. The other, which I think is perhaps more where your question is coming from based on how I'm, how I'm hearing it, is about intention. <clears throat> and again, going back to the, the, one of the previous questions, this factor of, of intention is key. What's our motivation in practice? Where is it coming from? Are we wanting to avoid feeling anything and just disappear, just make it all go away, just make it stop, right? That's resistance. That's more actual. It's, it's a form of aversion or hatred. I don't want this. Make it go away, right? So patience has a very different tone. Patience is a welcoming. It's a, this is what is. May I open to this? May I be with this? May I have the space and the strength and the ease to abide with what is. So the place to look there is to, is to the quality of your intention in your heart. And this is, not, this is not a mental exercise in terms of thinking and rationally trying to determine, well, is this my intention? Is that my intention? That's just going to, it's never going to end. It's a rabbit hole. You, you feel it in your body. How does this feel? Does this have the tone of something contracted, rigid, brittle, um, small, pulling away, pushing back, uh, trying to contain something? 
Does it have the tone of spaciousness, ease, brightness, warmth? Now, those are the words I'm using. Those, those are the ways I experience it might be different for you. It might not be somatic. It might be um, more in the realm of image or metaphor. Like it might be a quality of darkness or something that looks hard or sharp. Or it might have a different image. So the psyche and consciousness um, are not linear. So sometimes what happens with meditation teachers and meditation practices, we speak from our own experience and our own training, but your own experience is unique and different. So there's a, there's a translation process that you need to go through to, to hear what I'm saying and then apply it to your own experience. So what I'm pointing to here at, at the, the close of this question is um, take the process and the principle of, of listening with sensitivity to your own experience and listen for the signs. What are the signs that arise for you that let you know at the felt sense level, a deeper knowing, not a thought, that say, oh no, this feels wholesome, this feels healthy. This is onward leading versus mm, this is fear. And if it is the fear, if it is contracting, withdrawing, pulling away, Great, fine. Meet what is. Start where you are. Then that becomes the object of your meditation. Oh, let's be with this quality of pulling away and not wanting something. Okay. So one question is, can you speak to patience and perfection or imperfection? And then a possibly related or unrelated question that I'm putting together with it. Uh, Any advice on dealing with the harsh superego? self-judgments when first waking up in the morning. So um, patience and perfection or imperfection. Um, Perfection is a myth. Uh, I know we say in Buddhism, you know, the paramis, the ten perfections. We talk about the fully um, awakened and perfected one, the noble, you know, the Buddha, perfectly enlightened. Um, Life is perfectly imperfect. (laughs) It's like Suzuki Roshi said, you know, you're perfect just as you are, and there's room for improvement. (laughs) It's the paradox. Everything is exactly the way it is. You go out in the forest, and like every branch, every every leaf, uh, every piece of moss and stone is just just what it is. It's not trying to be something else. It's not, you know, it doesn't need to be fixed or ordered or tidied up. It's imperfect, and it's perfect in that kind of natural chaos. And our minds are the same. And there's the reality that, you know, there's a lot of work to do. There's confusion and hatred and delusion and self-centeredness and greed and all of these forces inside that create suffering. Um, so the, the, the patience, I think, is with um, but both the, the tension of that paradox and the patience with our own imperfections, with our own humanness. And it's not like, for me, this has been a real, a real learning for me in my own, my own life um, because of a, a lot of the conditioning I received growing up, is it's not like, okay, I'm just going to be patient with this until it gets better and then, I, and then I'll be okay. And then I will be lovable and acceptable and worthy is the sense of, um, oh, this is part of being human. And we've, we've all got this kind of like slightly 
icky, not so proud of areas. It's like one of one British monk, Ajahn Suchito, he talks about like, you know, an apple versus a potato. It's like the bright, shiny, crunchy, sweet apple and this kind of, you know, knobbly, dusty, brown uh, or pink, you know, potato. We're all knobbly potatoes. <laughs> We've all got like these little pock marks and dust and and just to, just the celebration of that because that's actually through our vulnerability and our imperfection is where we connect. That's where we, we see each other, right? We see each other through that sense of like, oh, you're human too. Oh, you do that too. Oh, you have struggles too. So um, patience is is that, that space to meet the imperfections. The, the harsh judgments inside, um, it's painful, it's hard. Um, it's, it's, uh, it takes time and it's a multi-pronged approach. Um, I think that the, the patience for that is taking the long view and recognizing it can shift, that inner voice and that inner relationship can shift. Um, and just in the time we have left, I'll offer maybe just three brief kind of pointers, and um, hopefully maybe we can continue with this more next week with the next Q&A. Um, one is be firm. When it's really nasty, no. Be willing to just stop and, and redirect your attention. Set a boundary, set a limit inside when it's really, really cruel and nasty. Um, two, uh, begin to develop a relationship with that voice. It's trying to help. It just doesn't know how. Listen to it and try to offer some understanding. Oh, you really want me to like make sure I get a lot done today or you're wanting, you're wanting me to exercise more so I can be healthy. Thank you. That's really kind of you. you know? So you, you develop a relationship with it through empathy and listening and understanding. And the, the tools of nonviolent communication are very useful for that because it gives us the language to empathize with that harsh and cruel voice. The third is compassion and loving-kindness practice. And this transforms the, in the default state of our inner narrative to one of disconnection and dissatisfaction and not good enough to one of connection. And so I would encourage you, if you're not already, to just take up um, one of those practices as, as a core practice for you. Okay, everyone. Uh, it's been really, this is really sweet for me to hang out, to see see all your faces and hear your questions. Um, Caroline will be uh, teaching tomorrow guided meditation on Dharma Seed and Friday giving a talk and, uh, and I'll be back on Monday. Uh, maybe see a few of you on Saturday. Have a great rest of your day and a great rest of your week. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.